This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming up on Stu Does America, what happened to the flu this season? How did it disappear? Phil Kerpet is here with the details. Uh, there is a new abortion opponent that outwardly has a direct connection to Satan, unlike normal, where that connection is much more subtle. We'll give you the details. And Chris Cuomo has issued a mea culpa for crossing ethical boundaries on his brother Andrew's sexual harassment case. And if we know one thing about the Cuomos, it's that you can take them at their word at all times. So let's do Chris Cuomo's apology. Stu does America. Yesterday, I told you I was not going to do a full rant on Chris Cuomo and his latest scandal. But it's important for you to know that I was lying. Complete and total fabrication. I mean, from beginning to end, I simply cannot be trusted. For those who do not know, The Washington Post released a story yesterday entitled Chris Cuomo took part in strategy calls advising his brother on response to sexual harassment allegations. Actually, I really wasn't going to do this, but then I saw the sort of apology from Chris Cuomo, which was such a masterclass in douchery. I just can't resist. Chef's kiss. Let's start out last night at the beginning of the show. If you would, allow me a moment. Mm. If you'll remember, I told you back in the beginning of March, I can't cover my brother's troubles. Mm. It wouldn't be fair. No. And you got it then, and I appreciate you understanding. Okay, yeah. So we never said we understood. Stop trying to do that. Just because you say we agreed with you doesn't mean we did. Everything's always a tactic with this guy, beginning to end all the time. All right, here's some more of his terrible explanation. Now, today, there are stories out there about me offering my brother advice. Mm -hmm. Of course I do. Of course. This is no revelation. No. I have said it publicly, and I certainly have never hidden it. Never. I can be objective about just about any topic, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but not about my family. No. Those of you who watch this show get it. Mm -hmm. Like you, I bet. My family Mm -hmm. means everything to me. Everything. And I am fiercely loyal to them. You are. I'm family first. Mm Mm-hmm. Job second. Wow. Oh, wow. So this is you with job as your second priority? I thought, I mean, it had to be way further down the list. I mean, you're so terrible at it. I assumed it was like 53rd. You know, you got uh, family, maybe corruption, bleach baths, uh, yelling at passing cyclists, all those things way before your job because you're terrible at it. He's all over the map throughout this abortion of an apology. But his first try here is that Obviously, he was advising his brother on his sexual harassment scandal. Of course he was. He's been totally transparent about that. And that's, of course, why it's a story in the Washington Post. That's totally what you'd expect a journalist to do when they have a politician relative in the midst of a scandal they should be covering. 
tell them behind the scenes to ignore all of the sexual harassment claims against him and ride it out. That's totally the expected thing to do, right, Chris? It's so expected. Why even bother mentioning it on your nightly show on a network with the tagline, the most trusted name in news? But being a journalist and a brother to a politician Mm -hmm. is unique. Is it? And a unique challenge. And I have a unique responsibility to balance those roles. Cross to bear. It's not always easy. People can say and write what they want, but Mm -hmm. I want you to know the truth. Oh, okay, sure. How I helped my brother also matters. Does it? When my brother's situation became turbulent, being looped into Mm -hmm. calls with other friends of his and advisors that did include some of his staff, I understand why that was a problem for CNN. It will not happen again. Mm, It will not happen. I guess we're just going to attempt excuse number two already. It will not happen happen again now what was totally obvious and completely expected two seconds ago is now a unique and difficult challenge that you can obviously see was a problem for our news network you say that's hard to balance is it is it hard to balance did you really not know that this would be a problem for a journalist was that really the sort of difficult intellectual quandary you might struggle with chris it sure is perplexing what to do what to do. And I'm not sure that describing your brother's alleged harassment and groping as turbulence is the right vibe for your heartfelt moment. Although I will say I do remember that some of the touching did happen on a plane. So maybe he's just saying the turbulence bounced him around and he fell down and his hands just happened to land on her inner thighs. It was a mistake because I put my colleagues here who I believe are the best in the business in a bad spot. I never intended for that. Mm. I would never intend for that. No. And I am sorry oh. for that. Oh, good. It's also important for you to understand. Mm. Tell me. Not only do I not cover this here, I've never tried to influence this network's coverage of, of my brother. No. In fact, I've been walled off from it. Mm. This is a unique and difficult situation, and that's okay. Mm. I know where the line is. Oh, I can respect it and still be there for my family, which I must. I have to do that. Uh, No, (laughs) you don't know where the line was, or at the very least, you definitely didn't respect it. Saying you know where the line is after you were caught and outed in the pages of the Washington Post is not respecting the line. And you'll notice we've moved on to explanation number three now. First, it was obvious. Of course, he advised his brother on sexual harassment. Then it was totally a tough call. Who can possibly tell where the line was? Now, I totally know where the line was. And CNN is completely right for calling me out on it after I was outed by the Washington Post. And allow me one more second on that last clip. Is there a person, one single person, within the sound of my voice, that believes, even for a split second, that Chris Cuomo did not try to influence the CNN coverage of his brother. That is the least believable thing I have ever heard in my entire life. Right off the bat, 
he arranged for the issue of his brother's scandal to be entirely deleted from a third of the primetime lineup of the network, namely his show. Beyond that, you're really, really going to attempt this. You're going to try to get us to believe that a guy who would make secret calls to advise his brother on his sex scandal was tight-lipped around the office when talking to other hosts and producers. Actually, he probably wouldn't lower himself to talk to a producer, but you get the point. I love my brother. I love my family. Mm. I love my job. Oh, do you? And I love and respect my colleagues here at CNN. Mm -hmm. And again, to them, I am truly sorry. You know who I am. You know what I'm about. Yes, we know who you are. And we know what you are about, Chris. And that is the problem here. Or at least it's one of the problems. I used to work at CNN. Fantastic cafeteria. And as hard as it might be to believe, there are a lot of good people who work there. And we've hit a point where internally, people are pissed off at the reckless disregard of the credibility of the entire building by Chris Cuomo. Here's a story about CNN from a website called CNN.com. Quote, the revelation that Cuomo has advised his brother vexed staffers inside CNN. Multiple CNN staffers said they were bothered by Cuomo's conduct and the violation of traditional journalistic standards. Journalists typically do not engage in politics so that they can cover the news in an impartial manner. That is a very good safety tip for Chris Cuomo to remember in the future because that is definitely not what journalists typically do, or at least they're not supposed to do that. I am not surprised that some of the people in the hallways who actually care about journalism are done with this guy. And I'm not surprised that journalists from outside the network who are free to be honest were outspoken on the matter either. Here's a few of them. Melissa Brown, she says, every time I see a mess like this, talking about Cuomo, I think about how the 22-year-old me wrestled with whether it was ethical to accept a free breakfast at a board meeting one time. Sam Stein from Politico and MSNBC. The Chris Cuomo story is a story of power. Any junior level staffer who moonlighted as a political advisor would see their job suspended or gone. Gene Park, Washington Post. Chris Cuomo face, faces no penalties by CNN despite having engaged in an easily fireable and inexcusable offense. Those are all put together by the New York Post. This is obviously a horror show and a crime against journalism by Chris Cuomo. But is it a surprise? Why did this happen? First, at the beginning of the pandemic, Chris Cuomo, a supposed journalist, asked CNN if it was okay to interview his brother. Just asking that question should have led to a reprimand and a trip to journalism re-education camp in the basement of the building. We're in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, and you want to interview your brother, who is in the middle of overseeing the worst COVID response in the world? Uh, no. But what were the consequences from CNN? Nothing. Then they actually allowed the interviews to happen. He asked no tough questions and fawned over his brother, allowing him to lie and joke constantly as tens of thousands of people died. What were the consequences from CNN? Nothing. Then, once things turned publicly ugly for Andrew, they were always privately ugly, Cuomo wanted to stop covering him. 
creating a massive gap in the primetime lineup on the biggest storyline of the biggest story in America. What were the consequences from CNN? Nothing. After all of that, why wouldn't Chris Cuomo think it was A-OK to do sexual harassment avoidance tactic advice with his dumb brother? Why wouldn't he think it was okay to disconnect the brakes on Janice Dean's car? He could get away with anything, apparently. And after he committed this obvious, obvious journalistic crime, and then was caught, not by CNN, by the way, but by the Washington Post, what were the consequences from CNN? Nothing. It was inappropriate to engage in conversations that included members of the governor's staff, which Chris acknowledges. The statement added, he will not participate in such conversations going forward. The network said Cuomo will not be disciplined again. In other words, nothing. Cuomo now says it won't happen again. But why would anyone believe that is true? Always remember the truth. Andrew Cuomo was awful. Dot com and Chris Cuomo is worse. Dot com. CNN has some good people still fighting on the inside to make the network respectable. I know it's hard to believe, but it is true. But the way the network as a whole has treated the Cuomo fiasco over the past year is a complete and utter disgrace. They have rolled over again and again and have embarrassed themselves and the entire network. They act as if they are at the wrong end of a dispute with a mob family. Coincidentally, they are. Let me tell you a little something about Built Bars. Built Bars are the absolutely fantastic protein bar. We're talking about low in calorie. We're talking about low in fat. We're talking about low in calories and protein, high in protein, low in carbs, high in fiber. The highs and the lows are in the right places. And that's important. Built Bars come in a variety of flavors. All of them are amazing. Cookies and cream, caramel brownie, raspberry, so many more. I mean, they're releasing, they know they just came out with a birthday cake one too. They've got some like new spicy one that's out now. They always are, one of the things I like about Built Bar, and I know I shouldn't be talking about like other foods right now, but like Oreo does this too, where they come out with like crazy flavors all the time. There's always something new to try. It's like go to BuiltBar.com like every day because there's always something new coming out. BuiltBar.com is the place to go. Use the promo code STU15 to save 15% off your next order. Promo code is STU15, 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Promo code STU15. One thing we can definitely, I think, all agree on is it's been a weird freaking year. Very weird. Maybe one of the strangest things about the last year is the, uh, the fact that the flu basically disappeared. How did that happen? Why did it happen? Somebody who's been following this very closely is Phil Kirpin. He's from uh, the American Commitment, and uh, he joins the program right now. Phil, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Stu. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks. Um, you've been watching this closely. Um, before we get into why this may have happened, what is the real scale of this? Like, I, to me, it feels like the flu basically completely disappeared. What is the difference in deaths and such from year to year? It is about 98 percent 
uh, reduction in hospitalizations, uh, similar uh, in the case detection numbers. And the deaths are down at least that much. It's hard to say for sure because usually they use a statistical model to say how many flu deaths there were. And there's so few hospitalizations this year that they can't run their usual model. Uh, But they do count individually the pediatric flu deaths. And usually the individually counted ones, as opposed to the statistical model, they find at least a couple hundred. Uh, This year there was one. So that should give you some indicator of what happened on deaths, even though they can't run their usual model. First of all, I mean, that's a very welcome positive here uh, from a a really rough year. But it's a very strange development. I mean, I know there was there was some conversation uh, leading into flu season that we could get this sort of double whammy effect that both of these things could hit at the same time. People may be weakened by one or knocked out by the other, meaning COVID and the flu. There was a lot of hype about that leading into uh, this flu season. And then it didn't happen at all. What's what's the what's the excuse for that? Well, I thought that hype was very poorly founded when it was happening in September and October for two reasons. One is we had already seen basically skipped flu seasons in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was a pretty good indicator that the same thing would happen here. And the second is that when COVID showed up last year, uh, the flu season was sort of cut short. It disappeared. And so it seemed to me that for whatever reason, uh, you weren't going to get both at the same time because that literally did not happen anywhere in the world. Instead, what happened is COVID showed up and flu disappeared. Now, one of the the things you see thrown around online a lot is that basically they're running tests uh, for uh, the the for COVID and they're just picking up flu cases and they think they're COVID. Now, the the science behind these tests would not allow for something like that. We don't think that uh, all these flu, you know, the flu cases that uh, that they, they actually are existing, but we're just counting them as COVID, do we? Uh, I don't think it's a testing artifact because we've actually run uh, a lot of flu tests this year. Uh, Not, you know, a tiny number compared to the number of COVID tests, but we've run a large number of flu tests compared to what we usually do. And in fact, most of the weeks sort of in the peak winter season, we were running more flu tests than usual. We were just basically, they were almost all negative. Uh, You know, zero point, you know, one or whatever would come back positive. Now, the more sophisticated version of this argument is, well, maybe they're doing the COVID testing first and then only if it's negative, they're doing flu tests. But by the time they do those uh, flu, is no longer detectable. And so there is the idea that there might be some kind of a testing artifact here. But in my opinion, it's been too consistent. It's been almost everywhere in the world, basically everywhere that COVID uh, had a high level, the flu completely disappeared. It's deaths, it's hospitalizations, and it's test results. So I, I think this is a real phenomenon. I don't think it's a result of uh, testing or shenanigans with the statistics, in my opinion. Yeah, and to your point, too, you mentioned uh, 2020, uh, when we had plenty of flu tests and no COVID tests, and we still saw the flu go away then, which would indicate that it is actually a real thing, which is really fascinating. Um, now, there's been a couple of uh, big uh, main arguments made on this. And one of the, I would say the one that's most common is this idea that basically, to, to summarize it, COVID is more, is more uh, likely to be spread. For example, the R0 on, on COVID is you know, somewhere between two and three, usually estimated at, where the flu is at 1.2, meaning that you, each person who has the flu only passes it to just over one other person, where COVID might be two or three people, so that the sort of mitigation efforts that we're making Uh, are enough to knock the flu out, but not really enough to knock COVID out. Is that a plausible theory? 
Uh, you know, I think it has some surface plausibility and it may be part of the explanation of what's occurred, but I think that on deeper inspection, it is a, it's inadequate. It can't really explain what we're seeing for a couple of reasons. One is almost every virus disappeared. Uh, the exception were rhinoviruses, uh, which remained, and adenoviruses, but basically all of the enveloped viruses disappeared for almost a year. So it wasn't just flu, it was all of the other human coronaviruses, it was parainfluenza viruses, it was uh, RSV. Uh, they basically all had the same thing happen regardless of their R-naught number, and some of those are believed to have substantially higher R-naught numbers even uh, than SARS-CoV-2. And so from that standpoint, I, I, don't, I don't think that that explanation works. And the second is that uh, this phenomenon happened everywhere in the world where COVID was epidemic, regardless of their mitigation measures. And so in Sweden, complete disappearance of flu and the HCOVs and RSV for a year. HCOVs and RSV eventually came back. Flu still hasn't, uh, but only recently in the last month or six weeks. And the same thing in Brazil, where you basically had a president saying, ignore your governor if he tells you to do mitigation measures. Uh, they had a completely skipped flu season. And so uh, the only places we really had flu seasons uh, were places in you know Western and Central Africa and East Asia that didn't have very much COVID. And so uh, to me, it looks like the better theory is the viral interference or viral competition theory that somehow the viruses are competing with each other. And uh, Michael Osterholm, the famous Biden uh, advisor who from, from the University of Minnesota, he basically said, look, the other argument that, that I thought that he made that was very good was he said, look, you know, it can't have been mitigation because our mitigation wasn't very good. It wasn't very effective. You know, we had 100 million some people get COVID. It meant our mitigation efforts weren't very good. It had to be viral interference uh, that these other viruses disappeared. Okay, this is a fascinating thing because, I mean, I leading into, you know, 2021, I don't think I ever had understood or even really heard the theory of viral interference. Uh, it, you know, I, it doesn't... I, can you explain it from ground zero? Because, I mean, I don't think most people are aware that this is even a phenomenon. Yeah, it's a pretty well-known phenomenon uh, in the literature, but it's not very well understood. So we don't really know why it is that when certain viruses take off and become more dominant, they sort of crowd out others and, and disappear, but not all. I mean, one of the oddest features of what's happened, you know, we had this year-long period, essentially, where flu and the human coronaviruses and RSV disappeared, but rhinoviruses were rampaging. They were doing great. They didn't seem uh, to be particularly affected. And in fact, uh, not only were they doing great, uh, but you know, when SARS-CoV-2 went down, they went up even more. So it, were they competing in a sense? Maybe, but they were never sort of stomped out the way these other ones were. Uh, there, it, there is a widely believed theory that the way the swine flu epidemic ended was interference from rhinoviruses. And so there are a bunch of papers that have been written on this, the way that the viruses compete with each other. They can compete on the host level, like you get whatever the big virus going around is, and then you've got some sort of mucosal immunity or something else that prevents other viruses to spreading from spreading to you, they may uh, compete uh, on some other level. Uh, they may compete, you know, in the environment somehow. So I don't think we really necessarily know what the mechanisms are. But historically, if you think about it, every year you've got your dominant flu A strain until this year where we didn't really have any flu A. But every year you have your dominant flu A strain and it shows up and the last year's disappears globally. 
You know, it, it doesn't keep circulating when the new one shows up. And so there seems to be something to this idea that whatever a given respiratory season's dominant virus is, it kind of gets most of the market share and the other ones disappear uh, to a certain extent. I don't think we've ever seen it uh, to the, the extent we did this year, but I don't think we've seen a massive pandemic that's this dominant to sort of crowd everything out. But if you think of sort of the more normal case, you know, this year's flu is the flu that goes around. You see very little, if any, of last year's flu in any given year. And so we shouldn't be totally surprised that this phenomenon seems to occur. But I sure would like to see a much better explanation. And I think we do need a lot more research to answer this question, especially because if you think about it, look, if we could get a very mild virus in a given year to be the dominant one and crowd everything else out, how great would that be? So and there are a lot of implications here if we could get a better understanding of it. It's been observed, but I don't think it's been really uh, well understood yet. Is there any, do scientists believe that there's any chance, you know, maybe COVID becomes dominant long term over the flu and the flu doesn't come back? Well, I think that's good, kind of one of the really interesting questions for this coming winter, right, is do we get, do we get COVID rising again or do we get it staying basically near zero and, you know, we have a big flu A or flu B or, you know, something else uh, is the year's dominant respiratory virus. And, you know, I'm not sure we know the answer there. Or do we get some mix? You know, if you sort of look historically at the flu seasons, you have some years where it's almost all flu A, some years where it's almost all flu B, and some years where you sort of have a mix of both. Maybe we get going forward, you know, a mix of flu A, flu B, and COVID in sort of different proportions. And mm -hmm. some years, one of them dominates and, and uh, other years not. Of course, you know, if the vaccines are as good as they look like they might be, uh, then we may never have, you know, a, a very bad COVID season again. And we may go right back uh, to to flu being, you know, to flu itself being the flu in flu season. <laughs> I, I would I take that. I go back to the flu at this point after this past year. Um, would you say uh, that we are at the end of this thing? Is is the pandemic over, Phil? I think so. You know, if one of the uh, one of the data sources that I look, like to look at for the levels of these various different viruses is one from a company called Biofire, which has a respiratory panel that looks for like 20 different viruses and doctors. If they have someone with respiratory symptoms, instead of just testing for one thing, they use this and they send it out and it tests for everything. And then it says this is what you have. And uh, their data now shows that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, is number four. It's behind rhinoviruses. It's behind the human coronavirus OC43, which is the, one of the common cold coronaviruses. And it's behind parainfluenza virus three, which is another sort of respiratory illness. So I don't think you can be pandemic when there are three other respiratory <laughs> viruses that are circulating at higher levels. And uh, the downward trajectory is pretty clear. And Outside of the South, which had a wave last summer, uh, most of the states were pretty close to zero last summer as well. And so, you know, I think that uh, the big question is whether we'll get a southern wave again in the same states that had it last year or whether, you know, it's sort of been through enough of the population plus the vaccine that that does not happen. So that'll be the next clue as to whether there are going to be additional rounds of this. But given what we've seen, the level of population immunity and the uptake with the vaccine, I don't think there's going to be another epidemic wave. I think that if it comes, it'll be more of a normal virus. Uh, and, and so I'm pretty optimistic that the pandemic is over. Uh, there's some uh, there's a piece, I think it was in The Washington Post today that made the argument basically that the virus still continues at relatively high levels 
among the unvaccinated. So if you take the vaccinated people out of the population, uh, you're still seeing a lot of spread between people who actually don't uh, have not been vaccinated yet. Uh, I mean, is this basically, do we think the path to the end of this when people have, everyone now has availability to go get it if they want it. If they don't get it, we kind of look back and say, look, this is your risk. If you take it, uh, you have to deal with the consequences, but we can't be shutting down society based on a few people who don't want to be vaccinated. Well, look, we've got very high vaccine uptake in every single state among seniors. And I think that Mm -hmm. that uh, shows a pretty good, you know, most Americans are pretty good at cost benefit analysis. And if you're a senior, you're 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 very at risk if you get the virus. And so, you know, the known side effects and the unknowns of it being a new technology uh, are greatly outweighed by the harms of the virus. And almost every single state, you're seeing 80, 85, 90% plus of seniors have already been vaccinated, at least one, if not two doses. Now you start moving down the age chain and it becomes a little bit less clear until you get to young people and sort of there's almost zero risk either way. And maybe they don't, you know, maybe they're not comfortable with being sick for a day after the second shot, or maybe they're scared of a new technology, whatever it might be. I think we've got to recognize the validity of the choice of people to say, you know, I'll take my chances with the virus. And I do think that, you know, eventually over time, the vast majority of people are going to either have the vaccine or the virus. And I think from a societal standpoint, if we're talking about low risk people, we shouldn't have that much of a preference for one over the other uh, because they'll get the virus, they'll be sick a little bit and then they'll get better and then they'll have immunity. And so, you know, I I think that uh, I think we're too obsessed with the vaccine uptake numbers. I've actually been really encouraged at how high they are. I know people keep saying they're low, but you look at the seniors in particular and the other at-risk groups and, you know, almost everyone went and got vaccinated. And I think among the low risk, it's basically, I think it's perfectly fine to decide not to get it. I don't think we should be concerned about that societally, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you said that. I, 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 because I I feel the same way. I mean, I think, you know, 85% of the uh, people over 65 plus have received the vaccine across the country. That's incredible. I mean, look, the overall adults, I mean, we're way up there uh, around. I mean, we're, we're approaching, what, 50 percent of the population at this point. Yeah. Um, you we're know, just over 60 percent of, of 18 plus of, of adults, so we're right? 50 percent of the total population, which is really, really good. We're adding a about number, a, yeah. a point and a half a week at this point. I mean, we're going to hit these Israel type numbers probably. And at that point, I mean, as we're seeing in Israel, I mean, it's almost non-existent. So, I mean, I, yeah. there's so much negativity about this and I don't understand it. Israel vaccinated, as of, I think, a day or two ago, last time I looked, they were at 58 point something percent of their total population. So it's not like they were at 75 or 80. And the virus basically collapsed to near zero and disappeared there when they were about 55 or 56, something like that. And so we're kind of already in the right. We've got a bunch of states already in the U.S. that have vaccinated more of their population than Israel. And, you know, I think that we also have more people who are recovered. Remember, the CDC said that as of the end of calendar year 2020, we had over 100 million people who had been infected and recovered. And, you know, in the pediatric group in particular, which is why I, you know, I, I don't think anyone should be running out to get a child vaccinated. We had 26.7 million children that already had the virus. So if you sort of put that into the mix of the of immunity that we already have, uh, we're way up there already, which is why you know, I don't think there's much risk of another epidemic wave. That's right. Some actual good news on this program. We don't do it often. But, Phil, thank you for bringing some. Phil Kirpin, <laughs> president of American Commitment. Thank you so much for coming on the program and, and boiling all that down for us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for hanging out and doing America with me this week. Let's keep the party going through the weekend over at the Instagram page at Stu Does America. 
give me a quick follow. Be sure to check out the link in the bio. It takes you to all the platforms where you can stream this stupid little show. And don't forget, you can represent all of us conserva nerds with some official Stu Does America merch. Whether you want a Nancy Pelosi sucks pen, an Andrew Cuomo is awful mug, a Senility Now t-shirt, uh, which are fantastic with Joe Biden's face on it. You're going to love those. Uh, you can find them all at StuDoesMerch.com. StuDoesMerch.com. U.S. is reporting now fewer than 30,000 cases for five straight days. I mean, we really are at the end of this thing, and that's really... It's really, really nice. I mean, I just love it. Um, the uh, nation's averaging 1.8 million daily vaccinations. I mentioned this earlier with Phil Kirpin. We're doing about a percent and a half a week of the population uh, when it comes to vaccinations. That's going to get us, uh, you know, unless it completely stops tomorrow, that's going to get us up in the area of where Israel is and, uh, you know, the UK and in, in, uh, in that, in that sort of realm where the virus has basically stopped. Uh, you know, I think we're going to get to a point pretty soon where, it really doesn't make sense to do this. And I think actually not even pretty soon. We're there. It doesn't make sense to do constant um, uh, forced testing of people who were vaccinated. We're seeing these like these cases where like you say, well, the New York Yankees, you know, a bunch of New York Yankees got it. I mean, they don't have any symptoms and nothing seems to be happening, but they had it in their nose. And it's like, well, you know, there's no evidence really that they can pass it to anybody and they're not having any symptoms. We're not going to get to a place where covid disappears completely the point is we don't want it to make us sick and now we have a place you know we're past this vaccination line if you're if you've already been vaccinated or i would argue as well if you've already had the virus you know really at this point i don't know how much that really matters i think it's gonna we're gonna continue to have these asymptomatic outbreaks occasionally because you know, I mean, you can't someone put it, I thought, pretty well on, uh, on on Twitter earlier today. You know, the vaccination doesn't give you a force field. It can still the virus can still get into your nose. The point is, it doesn't do anything when it's in there. So if you're swabbing a nose, you might still pick up the virus. That doesn't mean you have an active case of the virus. Uh, but we'll we'll kind of go down this road, I think, a lot over the next uh, probably uh, months and months, frankly. Um, there's a great article in The Atlantic. And if you've been following this show and its coverage of uh, COVID since the beginning, you're going to see a lot in here that you recognize. It's called the Texas Mask Mystery. And The Atlantic, again, not a conservative publication, points out in early March, Texas became the first state to abolish its mask mandate. Uh, as It was a big uh, hoopla around Greg Abbott saying that nine weeks later, um, after Neanderthal thinking and, you know, Beto saying, oh, you know, all these Texans were going to die. You know, we're seeing the exact opposite, as you know, if you watch the numbers and watch this program. So how could a the question in, uh, in the Atlantic, how could a policy so consequential or at least so public publicly contested do so little? Because it doesn't seem like the lifting of the mask mandates or any of these things did much of anything. Gives three uh, possible um, uh, reasons here. One, I think all three of them have some merit. One possible inter interpretation is that lifting mask mandates did almost nothing because masks in particular do almost nothing. Uh, this viewpoint enjoys widespread popularity among conservative outlets. And that's true. And I think not that they necessarily don't do anything, but they don't do as much as the media has advertised. You know, close quarters, you can cut. You know, Even in here, they're talking about you know 30 and 40 percent reductions. Um, uh, in uh, in cases in certain areas with masks, there's a you know there's a school uh, study that came out this week that said there's about a 30 percent reduction in in, uh, in schools that had mask mandates. 
you can find some reasons to think masks do something, but they don't end a pandemic. Just wear the effing mask was always terrible advice because you can wear the effing mask and the pandemic continues. So number one, masks just aren't that effective. I think there's some truth to that. A subtler possibility is that Abbott's decision didn't matter very much because of other factors such as weather, accelerating vaccinations, and a bit of luck. That mattered a little bit more. I think there's something to that too. Obviously vaccinations, you know how I feel about that. We've covered those in, in, in a lot of depth here. Though, I don't think we were at the level where you could you could say vaccinations are responsible for the drop in Texas completely. Maybe a little bit. The weather, maybe a little bit. We've seen that uh, in 2020 as well. But the last one is the one I think you'll be most familiar with if you've been here and watching the show since, uh, you know, last February and March. Another explanation is that Abbott's decision didn't matter because nobody changed their behavior. According to the aforementioned Texas paper, Abbott's decision had no effect on unemployment, movement throughout the state, or foot traffic to retailers. It had no effect in either liberal or conservative counties, nor in urban or exurban areas. The pro-maskers kept their masks on their faces, the anti-maskers kept their masks in the garbage, and many essential workers who never felt like they had a choice to begin with continued their pre-announcement habits. The governor might as well have shouted into a void. This is America. The people lead the government not the other way around. That's how it's supposed to be here, and it's how it's been throughout this entire process. Across the country, in fact, people's pandemic behavior appears to be disconnected from local policy, which complicates any effort to know which COVID-19 policies actually work. Uh, They go through a bunch of economic uh, comparisons and showing, really, people made these decisions because of their own cost-benefit analysis, their own risk tolerance. Ends it here. Governors don't reopen or close economies. The CDC doesn't put masks on or take them off citizens' faces. A small number of elites don't decide when everyone else feels safe enough to shop, eat inside, or get on a plane. People seem to make these decisions for themselves based on some combination of local norms, political orientation, and personal risk tolerance that resists quick reversals no matter what public health officials say. This has been the story since the beginning. It's why it's been so frustrating that all we've done is talk about what some governor says about masks. In reality, people made their whole, their decisions largely uh, on their own. Now, that doesn't mean every business uh, got that benefit. Some of them were closed by the governor. There's a lot to talk about there. But as far as the disease spreading, people assess the risk on their own. Um, that's why it's important to understand you're never going to get to the to the real answers to these questions if all you do is put a line on a map and say look they said the mask mandate uh you know turned on here and cases went up and then he turned it off here and they went down like first of all a mask mandate is not strong enough to do it even if people listened it wouldn't wouldn't turn the tides of a pandemic but people didn't listen they just did what they did When people felt like it was a big deal, they put the masks on. When they didn't, they took them off. That's why people largely understood that outdoor masking never made any sense, and they never did it, whether there was a mask mandate outside or not in most areas. Um, Another Texas story, uh, the Satanic Temple has sued Texas over abortion regulations. It argues infringe on members' religious beliefs. So they believe in Satan, and they want abortion. Tells you something about abortion, doesn't it? Just uh, just throwing that out there. They claim that uh, abortion is part of their religious ceremony. Now, this is an obvious scam. They're just trying uh, to uh, push back and, oh, well, I swear it's our religious belief. You have to abort children. Therefore, it's a protected action. First of all, you know, freedom of religion is very, very important in this country. It does not mean you can kill other individuals. 
if Christianity was like, you know what, we're just going to sacrifice uh, one out of every 10 people on a cross because we believe that's in the Bible and we're going to do it to everybody, it wouldn't be okay. It doesn't trump your, light, your right to live. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a funny little tactic they're trying here, but as is uh, the case with Satanists generally, not really a brilliant group. Um, then finally, we have uh, dating apps here in, in Texas and across the country, Tinder, Hinge, and Bumble. All of them, all the big ones, are basically giving you an, act, uh, uh, an option to say, I only want to see vaccinated people here. So... <laughs> I mean, look, this is, this is, this is just, I feel like these debates come up every day and we could sit here and focus on the back and forth all the time. And then every once in a while I step back and I say, look, this is just going away because the vaccines worked. It's working very well. We're going to be near Israel levels fairly soon. And at the end of the day, this is just going to be over. And you know what? At the end of the day, the people who don't like vaccines are going to come tell you it was for some other reason. The people who do like vaccines are going to tell you it was the vaccines. The people who liked masks back in the day when the numbers would go down would say it was masks and the people who didn't like it would say it was something else. Blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, you're going to be able to go to the movies again. That's the end of the story. Congratulations, America. Another sort of bump in the road, as it were, in the world of cryptocurrencies uh, today. And, you know, I like to just I'm kind of at the point where I just want to blame Elon Musk because I'm annoyed with his dumb environmentalist points. But really, this has nothing to do with Elon Musk's tweets at this point. Uh, China has been cr- threatening crackdowns and acting on them. Um, now, people in China who do this are shrugging it off and kind of moving along and and not seeing this as the end of crypto in China. But, you know, most of the mining uh, of all Bitcoin, for example, for example, happens in China. It's a big part of the market. It's a big deal when the government starts to crack down. Obviously, communist China is going to do what it does. But we're seeing this not only there, we're seeing this across the country. You know, Janet Yellen is no fan of crypto. And the fact that she and others in the government see this as um, they see the pipeline hacking as an example to say, look, they shut down our pipeline and they used Bitcoin. And they, the only way they would take uh, they, they could pay it off was with Bitcoin. These cryptocurrencies are just leading to too much illegal behavior. Now, this is a BS argument. We've broken it down before. Uh, but now the government is trying to get uh, crypto transfers of over ten thousand dollars to be reported to the IRS. This government is not going to sit back and accept uh, uh, something that, that gives it that much competition. They're going to try to shut it down. Luckily, there's a lot of big, powerful people who are involved in this, and a lot of people have adopted it and realize how important it can be for the future. But that's not going to stop governments from trying, and they are going to try to do what they can to cryptocurrency. You're going to see these bumps come in um, for a long time. I, I hope that ends. I'd like to see the attitude more of um, Mayor Francis Suarez in Miami, who's kind of trying to turn this uh, Miami into kind of a crypto paradise. All these people who've made this money come here. We're friendly to crypto. We want to help you innovate. We want you to be here. You're not the enemy. Constantly, this is what happens with government and capitalism, where government comes in and says, hey, capitalist innovation, we don't want you here. What Mayor Suarez is doing in Miami is a big deal. And I really do hope it continues because that's sort of the billboard approach. That's the way it should be handled. This is the sort of the marquee example. Invite people in, innovate. Let's everybody work together and make this as beneficial to everybody as possible. 
uh, that's what he's doing in Miami, and hopefully that spreads around the country. Thank you for wishing my wife a happy birthday on her Instagram page uh, yesterday. I do appreciate it. As a thank you, she sent this Joe Biden impression to me from TikTok. Watch. I remember when I was just a little boy. The year was 1901. I was this big. I remember I lived in a two by four and I would ride this little snail to work. I would deliver newspapers and it was an incredible thing. I, I had a friend. He was an aunt. And he told me, he said, Joe, one day you're going to, man, come on, look, folks. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just Joe Biden. It is. Uh, it, it reminds me of our Senility Now t-shirt, which, by the way, available at StuDoesMerch.com. I, I, he could totally tell the ant story at any point uh, during the day. So make sure you check that out. By the way, we told you a little bit about a Marilyn Monroe statue outside of a museum which kind of had evolved into a territorial dispute between a museum and, and the people placing this statue. Do we have a picture of the statue? Basically, it's, you know, it's, her, it's her, her dress being blown up. And they were like, you can just see her underwear. It's basically you walk out of the museum and you're just looking at a woman's behind. Um, well, they have solved this now. They're going to keep the statue there because they say you'd need binoculars to see her underwear as you came out of the museum. So everything's OK. Uh, I mean, if you think your job sucks, look at it this way. At least you didn't have to go stare up Godzilla Marilyn Monroe's dress in front of a museum full of people because, I mean, you know, silver linings, I guess.